Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome everybody coming into my home for Gospel Saving Church, and I want to welcome everybody coming from SoundCloud and all over the world to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God, and thank you for coming and joining and listening to me this Sunday. Uh, it's good to be back. Uh, we did not record our sermon last week as I was on vacation. So welcome back, everybody coming from SoundCloud. God bless you. I'm sorry I missed a week for you, but I was getting some rest and relaxation up north with my wife for a little Christmas break vacation. So uh, anyway, it's good to be back. Praise the Lord. Uh, if you want to join me in a word of prayer, and we're going to start our service. And uh, let's ask the Lord to bless my teaching and help our hearts to understand His Word today. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for your Word today. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you so much, Lord God, that you are still reaching out, Lord, uh, to people all over the world, Lord. Some, some more than others, some countries more than others, Lord, but nevertheless, you're still reaching out, Lord. Your love still goes on. And uh, Lord, I thank you for that, Lord. It just shows me that your word is true again. Your word says that your mercies are new every day. And Lord, uh, by you continuing to reach out, Lord, it shows me that your mercies are new every single day still. So Lord, please bless this message and help us to understand it. Help my mouth to speak the things that you want me to say and help our ears and our hearts to understand and apply what we hear today from you and from your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do our teaching today, not me, and that you would just go flow through me, Lord, and teach us through me, Lord God. And we ask these things and we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So if you guys want to get your Bibles turned, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25 is going to be our scripture today. Again, that's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, and we'll read them after our thoughts from last week's message. Are you still satisfied with Christ? So two weeks ago now, remember because we took that break, two weeks ago we read about how those young widows, that they had grown wanton against Christ. If you remember, that's what Paul said about them, which means that they stopped being satisfied with Jesus Christ, not for any reason at all, just for the specific reason, verses 11 and 12 tell us, that they desired a husband. So they desired someone to satisfy their fleshly desires. And because of this, Paul said that they fell into condemnation because they left their first faith. That would have been chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. So, which means that if they fell into condemnation, that they were once not condemned. And since they fell into condemnation, that means they switched paths, switched course from heaven. They were headed toward heaven, satisfied with Christ. And they switched course toward hell, stopping being satisfied with Christ. And so, therefore, they became dissatisfied with Christ. Now, switch course to hell. And I said that, unfortunately, this same thing can happen to any Christian if we also were to become dissatisfied with Christ. This is a trap, Christians, and it's one that we need to be guarded against, and it's one that we need to be careful that we do not fall into. In light of this statement today, I want to give you some who are listening to me that are really saved, those that are really born again, that are on the path, that are still headed toward heaven, I want to give you some exhortation and some scripture to help you avoid this trap. And as I said, The reason these young widows fell into condemnation is because they developed a stronger desire for a man to satisfy their fleshly desires than they desired Jesus Christ. This this sin is called the lust of the flesh. And it's really deceptive and, of course, it's really alluring. 
in our lives that we live, you see, we see more and we feel more, which makes this flesh body happy. And of course, so it's real deceptive. The devil comes in there and tries to catch us with the snare of the, the lust of the flesh because it's what we're, it's what our bodies, these fleshly bodies want. It's what these fleshly bodies long for. And it's a really easy thing to develop a strong desire to satisfy your flesh because, you know, it's what you see, it's what you have, it's what's all around you. So it's real easy to develop a stronger desire to satisfy your flesh than it is to have a stronger desire to love Jesus Christ, just like those widows, the same problem that they had. Look at what the disciple of Jesus said. The disciple John, the apostle John, says in 1 John 2, 15-17, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's a command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Listen to what he says. If anyone loves the world... That means that we have a lust of the world. We love the world. We love the things in the world. He says, the love of the Father is not in him. That's scary. You see, Jesus said, you must love me more than you love mothers and brothers and sisters and friends and so on and so forth. And here John says the same thing. If anyone loves the world or the things of the world, you could say, then the love of the Father is not in him. He says, goes on to say, for all that is in the world... Look at these things, the lust of the flesh. That was the problem of the, of the, the, the widows. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He says they're not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. So see, these lusts that we have of our flesh, the lust of our eyes and the pride of life, they're all passing away just like this world we live in. But he goes on, he says, lastly, and we'll end with this to it today. He says, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said, it's only those who do the will of the Father that shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So you see here, it's a real easy trap to get into. The lust of the flesh and the world's full of it and we could easily fall prey to it. So... It's a trap and it's a danger that we need to watch out for, that we need to not fall into. If you think about it, uh, in our physical world of marriage, in in the world today and in the U.S. today, men and women, especially in the U.S., are often falling out of love with their spouses and they're deciding to get divorces because they think they find someone that they love more. See, what's the same thing in the Christian's life? If someone's a Christian and they have a relationship with God and and Jesus Christ is their Lord, you see, the Bible says that they're like our spiritual spouse. They're like our spiritual husband. That's what the Bible says. And in in a relationship marriage, a spiritual marriage, just like in a physical marriage, one can fall out of love with another just like they can in a physical relationship. So, and they can do that easily in a physical relationship because of the lust of the flesh. Oh, I don't love my wife anymore because she doesn't look, you know, the way I think she should look. Or, uh, you know, my husband because he doesn't treat me the way he treated me when we first got married. Well, it's easy to do in a spiritual relationship with God because of the lust of the flesh. Because, oh, I love the things of the world more than I love God. Because, oh, I need those things to satisfy and gratify my flesh. So one practice that will help you not to fall away from God, if you really love Christ and if you're really walking with Him, to not fall away and not fall out of love with Christ is this. 
Remember these things. Remember that you're a sinner. Remember that I'm a sinner. I need to remember that I'm a sinner. And that we're all sinners. And the Bible says that sinners are deserving of hell. Sinners are deserving of hell fire. And if you've been saved and you're really a Christian and you love God, remember what Jesus and he have done for you. Remember that Jesus Christ left heaven. He left the very throne room of God. He left the very perfection of heaven itself to come down into this sin-filled world of hatred and and evil and, and lust and murder and rape and everything to give his life on the cross so that he could pay for your sins and mine so that we, any and all that would come to him, could take his sacrifice and be saved and not suffer hell when we die. Well, that's a pretty good reason to love somebody. And if we remember that, if we remember that, then we won't soon forget where we came from, and we won't soon forget his love, and then we won't soon look to something else to satisfy us, because we'll have his love to satisfy us. That's probably why Jesus in Luke twenty-two nineteen said, and he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. We talked about this in communion today. He said, this is my body. This is the sacrifice that I made for you. Do this in remembrance of me as you, as you eat this bread because my body's broken. That's my love for you. And we re- when we remember his love, the breaking of the bread represented his sacrifice and his death on the cross to redeem us from our sin, right? And when we remember his love and we re- when we remember this sacrifice, it keeps our minds off of the lust of the flesh, And it keeps our minds unfocused of, look what he did for me. Look at how much he loves me. Because that sacrifice is a once and all for sacrifice forever. He did it once, but it's good for everybody until until the end of the world. So it's all one and he still offers it today. And that's why we need to be careful not to fall in the lust of the flesh. And there's one way, the only real way that we can keep focused not on the lust of our flesh, but on his love and not fall into the trap that those widows fell uh, into growing wanton against Christ. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we go again. Uh, Our new sermon titled, To Whom Much is Given, Much is Required. We're going to read over 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25, and then I'll teach on it. Again, title, To Whom Much is Given, Much is Required. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be accounted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. 
No longer drink only wine, but you are no longer, excuse me, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some will follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So, this whole chapter so far has been what? Paul teaching Timothy how he should be treating his church members, right? We started off, or the, we covered last week the, the widows, and with, you know, and, and with along with that, we stood, you know, the young men and the young women and the older ladies and the older men, and now we're down to the same thing. Paul continues to go on the same line of track, and we're going to finish chapter 5 today, and he continues on the same line of teaching. Except this time we have a different kind of church member that Paul is teaching Timothy on how to treat. He says, hey, Timothy, make sure you treat this certain church member a certain way. Which, what, what is the type of church member that we're looking at today? Well, verse 17, the first part of verse 17 says, let the elders. So we're talking about the elders of the church. Now remember, elders are pastors or overseers. They're kind of like the people that, you know, run the church. Okay, they're the people that are in charge of you know, watching over the business side of the church and making sure that, you know, things are the way they are supposed to be and making sure that the church is following God's word and so on and so forth. They're like the, they're the, the, the overseers, the pastors, the teachers. These are the elders of the church. Here, Paul's Tim, excuse me, here Paul tells Timothy how he, as the main pastor of the church, should be treating other pastors and overseers. And he's telling Timothy how the congregational members of the church should be treating him as well as other pastors and overseers and elders as well, all the like. Now, think of this. I know you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. No, uh, pastors and elders and deacons and all that, although they are the leaders of the church, they are still church members. I mean, they, they still go to the church, right? They lead the people in the congregation, but they are still church members. So you have to remember this, uh, that the uh, that these people aren't just like, you know, they're not just superhuman. No, they still belong to the church, and even though they're the leaders of the church. So how should pastors, elders, and overseers be treated by their congregations and by other pastors? Verse 17, Paul says, let them be counted worthy of double honor. What is it? What is he talking about? Well, double honor doesn't mean worship them. Of course, I, I've been in churches before where the congregation literally worshipped the pastor or the assistant pastor. So Paul's not telling Timothy this, but double honor being counted of double honor means that we as congregations or pastors to other pastors should, should be treating them with high respect, high honor due to them. Above, you'd say, congregational members. You say, well, is that a bias? Well, yes. These are pastors. These are your leaders. Giving them higher respect is a good thing to do. They're the people that are in charge. But this double honor isn't just in giving them more respect. It's also, it also includes giving them financial support or pay. Read verse... Uh, excuse me. I lost my page here. Read verse 18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So the Bible's clear here, Paul's clear here, that pastors should be paid, it's, it's a paid profession. So pastors shouldn't be teaching churches for nothing. It's a, it's a biblical principle, as Paul just says here. Um, now, a lot, what happens today, and this is a very touchy subject in churches today, because a lot of pastors, they take advantage of that. 
All they do is they talk to you about how much you should be tithing and oh, oh, it's so important and oh, we're doing this new church program and oh, give, 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 oh, give us your money, give us your money, oh, we need to do this, oh, we need to do this. And that's what they make their main focus on is you giving them their money and this is wrong. And I don't really even talk about money that much in this church because it is such a, people in this country have really abused this principle of the Bible. So really, I just want to get you in a right relationship with God and, and, and hear, let you hear the word and get you saved or, or help you walk with the Lord more than I'm worried about my bank account because I have jobs anyway. I don't even need the church's support. But Paul does make it very clear here that the church and its members uh, should be supporting their pastor basically with a paycheck. You know, pastors should be collecting a paycheck every week or every month or something from the church to help support them. The uh, Let all elders or overseers be accounted of double honor. So high respect and pay, which brings me to my next point. Did Paul tell Timothy that the members of a church should support financially and give high respect to all pastors and overseers no matter what? That's a good question, right? Should all pastors, should all elders, should all overseers be deserving of high respect and financial support no matter what and no matter what they do? Not even close. There in verse 17, Paul tells Timothy that there are stipulations that a pastor or overseer must uh, must meet before they're worthy of high respect and financial support. Verse 17 says, he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor or high respect. And he goes on to say, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So what is this? What is this? We don't hear about this taught in churches. We don't hear about this. We just hear, oh, give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. As a congregation of these pastors, they should be going, okay, how hard are you really working for us? How hard are you really serving us? How much time are you spending in the word, pastor? How much time are you really spending? So they never get into that. They give me your world. Here's the Bible says you should be paying me. But they don't ever talk about the other aspect of what are you doing for us, pastor? Are you really serving us well? Are you really laboring in the word? What does it mean to labor in the word? That means that it's, we're in Bible, the, the pastor is in Bible study intensiveness. He, he is working at that word. He's working at that doctrine. He's studying. He's studying the show that himself approved unto God, a, a workman worthy of his wages, right? He is not just sitting back and collecting a paycheck and just teaching once a week or whatever. He's, he's working hard. He's working hard for his congregation. He's, he's teaching them. He's counseling them. He's available for them. This is what Paul says that it means to be, uh, you know, get this support and be counted worthy of double honor, which is backwards today. A lot of pastors, that's all they do. All they do is they teach and they sit at their pulpits and they don't, you know, they, they, they don't, I don't even know if they really study. A lot of churches I've been to in the past, they roll out with this, oh, have this uh, little, you know, they give you this paper and say, well, let's follow this outline. And I mean, basically, you you don't even have to do a Bible study to go through this outline. I mean, I could just, if I had an outline, which is, we're pre-described, you can actually go buy them. Uh, In in case you're not aware, you listen to me online there. You can actually go buy outlines to sermons, and you can basically, it takes you five, ten minutes, you can go through this outline and fill in the blanks, and you can have a 20 to 25 minute sermon without even spending ten minutes of Bible study to do this. And this is a maybe once or twice a week thing, and this is not, this is backwards today. 
The church has it backwards, especially in America. The pastors don't really labor in doctrine and work. They're not really serving their congregations. They're really just, hey, I made it here. You elected me. Give me my money. And yeah, I'm going to teach you this stuff. And then I go home. That's backwards. So are there really lazy pastors and overseers in God's church? Well, there absolutely are. Just like there are congregational members who are lazy, meaning they don't do the things that God called them to do. Sadly, there are also those who've made it into the ministry of pastor and elder overseer, but they have grown lazy and they're not serving God in the church in the way God says to. So if the opposite is true, because I think the Bible says that the opposite's true, in every single case the opposite's true, I believe, and I think the Bible says if a pastor or overseer has become lazy, we need to remove them. We need to get them out, but yet people keep honoring them and people keep supporting them because they don't read their Bibles and what Paul says, and you know, the Bible always has stipulations. God has always stipulations to his answers to prayer. He doesn't just say, pray and ask for whatever you want from me. He says, if you pray and ask according to my will, then you will receive what you ask for. He doesn't say, oh, you can just pray for and have whatever you want. Same thing with pastors and elders. They don't just deserve high respect and support because they do and live whatever. They deserve it because they're working hard for you. They're your servants. They're the ones teaching you. They're your ministers. You're not supposed to be serving them. They're supposed to be serving you. And they're supposed to be studying hard and working hard and serving you as good leaders of God's church. So here Paul says, Only give double honor and financial support to the elders and pastors if they're leading and overseeing God's church or your church well and they're working hard in the scriptures to understand and to teach you. And this double honor also includes verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So pretty easy. This just means that, let's say, uh, you know, one congregation member comes to the leadership of the church and he says, you know, pastor so-and-so or elder so-and-so or deacon so-and-so says that, uh, you know, he, he said this or I heard him say that or I, I heard him, you know, living like this. Uh, okay, well, that's, that's, that's good and kind, but if there's only one, Paul says, you know, pretty much discard it. Throw it away because the Bible says that this type of man who's supposed to be living a life above reproach, obviously if he's living that kind of a life, it's going to show and more than one person is going to see it. Multiple people are going to see it. So uh, do not receive any kind of accusation again against them uh, if they're in need of correction or an issue of sin, if there's just one person bringing the accusation against This is a good principle to practice even with regular members of the church. I mean, if one member has another accusation against another church, then there should be multiple witnesses to come and not just one. This is just a good practice for the church to follow. So, no accusation is to stick to an overseer or pastor if it's just one person that brings this against them. But what if two or three come to the leadership? What if two or three make accusations against a pastor or overseer about some sin or evil that they're practicing? What if... What should the leadership do of the church according to Paul? Verses 20 and 21, read them. Those who are sinning, meaning that they've been accused by two or three and they've been caught sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. That's kind of harsh. And then he goes on to say, don't just do that. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elders. So I command you, Timothy, I command you, do this, uh, that 
that you observe, he says, I, I charge you to do this, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. So, translation, even if this person that's been accused by two or three, even if they are the most highly respected pastor or elder or overseer in the church in, or in the whole world, Paul commands Timothy in the sight of God and the elect angels and his holy angels that the leadership of the church call them out on their sin or call them out on their sins openly in front of the church. Openly. That means that we're all gathered together, whether there's 100, 200, 300, 1,000, all the people are there. Stand this person up and call them out on their sins in front of the whole church, showing no partiality. That means that we're not going to show them favoritism because of the position that they're in. That everyone in the church, he says, may see it and become afraid. Wow. That's kind of harsh. That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. You know, getting a guy up, standing him up. You know, he's been caught in some sinful action. He's been caught in some doing some things. And here we stand him up in front of 100 people or in front of 500 people. And we call him out on his sin. So that, and we're not just talking about, hey, Bob, you sinned. You did wrong. No, we're talking about a chastisement here. Because we're supposed to be calling them out on their sin so that all may be afraid. Well, if somebody just says, oh, hey, Bob, you're in sin, sit down. Well, that's not going to cause me to be afraid. What are they talking about? What makes somebody afraid? Hey, Bob, dude, you sin. You're in danger of hellfire. You're wrong. And then everybody's going to see that. And everybody's going to be like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's, that's harsh. Bob sinned. And now they're calling him out in front of the whole church on it. Yes, it's harsh. But it's a good practice. And I wish that we would see it in the church here in America today. It would sure either, A, bring these sinning pastors and and elders or overseers to repentance, or drive them out of the church so that they would not be a bad representation of the position that that they've been given. Why would Paul want Timothy and the leaders of the church to deal so harshly with a pastor or overseer caught in sinfulness? Well, number one is the title of our message. To whom much is given, much is required. See, pastors and overseers or elders are given a great position by God. God lifts them up. God gives them a position that they stand in front of the whole church. And the whole church sees that guy. And the whole church sees their actions. And when you're in the leadership, people are always looking at you. And so when people are looking at you, God says, hey, you're the teacher here. You're the one that's supposed to be leading my flock. And when you're leading my flock, I hold you more accountable than I hold the one that's be, you know, that you're leading. Because you're the one that's they're following. And guess what? When a pastor or a leader is in some kind of sin and they're practicing some kind of sin and you as a congregation see that pastor or see that leader and you see them in sin, what are you going to think's okay? Oh, I th- that's okay. Hey, Pastor Bob, hey, he's doing this. And Pastor Joe, he's doing that. Oh, that's okay. I, that must mean I can do it too. And that's dangerous. That is absolutely dangerous. And so... uh 
basically he doesn't want these guys to be doing it because he's given them, a, a, you know, to much to whom much is given, much is required, and. Paul wants the whole church to see them be rebuked and called out so they become afraid so they won't fall into the same sinful lifestyle. Uh, basically, if a Christian leader is, as I said, if a Christian leader is practicing any sin, then other Christians could think it's okay and start doing the same. And the, and the Bible says no to that. The Bible says no to living a sinful lifestyle. Uh, what consequences bring? What, what are the consequences of a sinful lifestyle? Let's say we start practicing a sinful lifestyle today or tomorrow or next week or next year. What, what happens if we start doing that? Well, we got to look at verses like Hebrew 10, 26 and 27, where Paul, I believe, writes, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, that means that we're, A, we're sinning, hey, oh, God's okay with it. Oh, I'm just... I can sin all I want. It's okay. God's okay with it. If we sin willfully... After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That means Jesus' sacrifice, if we're going to start to live a sinful lifestyle and practice it willfully and have no regard for God in that what we do, oh, he'll just forgive us, oh, he's just a loving God, then the Bible says here that there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. That means Jesus' sacrifice is no longer good for us because we've trampled his grace. But he goes on to say, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Both now, now think about this too. Both Paul and Christ, Paul in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 both say that all who practice any sin, any who practice any sin shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So, you see, it starts at the pastor level. And then it rolls down to the congregation level. And that's why we can't have the leadership because they've been given a lot of, you know, they've been held up high and they've been give, given much, you know, responsibility. And so God holds them higher because they're leading you. And if you see them doing something, you're going to do it too. And so that's why God, you know, Paul says that you need to practice this principle. And I charge you to do it without partiality before God and before his angels. And you better not hold one above another. I don't care how high they are. I don't care if it's the president of the the Baptist convention of the whole world. You better call them out on their sin or else, and then we're going to get to that in a minute. So as I said, uh, we need to see more of this in the Church of America because we got lots of people that have been so-called pastors, but then live in these opposite lifestyles toward the Christian lifestyle. And definitely they churches don't do anything about them and they stay in charge and and then before you know it then the world thinks it's okay and you know there's no difference between a christian and a non-christian and everybody lives the same it doesn't matter if we practice sin and you know the world's on its way to hell unfortunately so now paul does say that in uh in the first in the first part of verse 22 he says don't lay hands on anyone hastily so we, we have a, a sinning pastor, something like that position. We have a sinning overseer, a sinning elder. But Paul says, don't do it rashly. Don't do it too quick. Uh, before you decide to call out a pastor overseer or, or anyone in the church for their practice of sinfulness in front of the whole church, make sure that you have made an accurate judgment and that they are indeed guilty as the multiple witnesses have said. But... If they are guilty, verse 22 right there in the middle says that Paul says, do not share in their sins. You see, 
if a pastor or overseer is guilty, and Paul says here that the leadership and the congregation is supposed to call them out on their sins after they're found in sin by two or three witnesses and after it's been affirmed that they are, if the church, if the leadership just keeps letting that pastor go, if the leadership and the church and the other pastors and the other officers just lets that pastor keep on sinning and keep on letting the church go, then Paul, then God and Paul say here that the leadership and the church is responsible. And if you and the church and the leadership keep letting that pastor go, then you're approving of their sin. And when you approve of their sin, you're sharing in it. Think about it, you're walking hand in hand with these people in the gospel hand in hand with these people in the Bible, and if you're letting them sin and you're walking hand in hand with them spiritually, whatever sin that they do, you're not stopping them, and the Bible says that you're supposed to, so then when you don't, you're just, even though you're not doing it, literally, God says that that gets imputed to you, because since you're walking with them and you're not saying anything to stop them and it's your responsibility to do so, then you're responsible for their sin as much as they are. So Paul says here, he and, and, and by God's authority, don't share in other people's sins. It's pretty simple. He ends this, this, this powerful section on how accountable pastors are supposed to be and elders are supposed to be by giving a powerful charge at the end of verse 22. And he says, keep yourselves pure. Keep yourselves pure. So be careful when you're practicing this practice here. Be careful when you're calling out pastors if you found some in sin, but if they're in sin, hey, I charge you, do it. If it's needed, do it, but, but, and do it so that you don't share in their sins. And, but above all, above all that you do, keep yourself pure, Timothy. Christians in a church, keep yourselves pure. God, I, I don't think people, especially in America, as I talk to Christians, and as I know a lot of people that I've met in my 15 or 16 years in life as a Christian, I don't think Christians take the sin they commit as impactfully or as important as God does. <clears throat> that, I, just, I just see that. I, I just don't see the church taking Christians' sins as important as I think God takes them. And yet, when you read the Bible, we see a different message. We see things like what Paul just said here. Keep yourself from sin. We see Hebrews chapter 10. Don't sin willfully, otherwise you'll lose Christ's sacrifice for your sins. Hey, Jesus, in Matthew 7, don't practice sin. But yet the church in America doesn't, oh, it's, you know, God loves me and I'm okay. And, you know, I just, I, Jesus is my Savior and I believe. And yet the Bible, over and over and over and over and over again, God says to Christians, be abstain, or be abstain from the sin of this world. Be free. Be, be away. But what, that's, that's what sanctification means, in fact. Sanctification is a process that all Christians, that people are really saved, should be going through. So you should, if you're really saved, and you listen to me out there, from the time you got saved, whether that was a year ago or 10 years ago, you should see as you live your life, as you continue following Christ, you should see a decreased pattern of sin in your life. And I don't mean that, oh, I'm just so holy. No, I mean that if you're really saved, and you're really walking with Christ, and you're really led by God's Holy Spirit, then 
as you continue to walk with him, you and and as you do things, all of a sudden after you're saved, you'll do something. You'll be like, oh wait, who? Oh wait, how? Oh what? That doesn't feel good anymore. Oh, and in fact, you get this little like check. Wait a minute, I, that that's wrong. But two years ago, you thought that was okay. I have had so many of those things in 16 years with God that I did things 16, uh, 16 years ago that I, I can't even think about now. Or I, even if I think about them, I feel like I'm sinning. And that, that's because the Bible says that when God saves you, He starts sanctifying you. He sets you apart. Now, that means He takes you out of the ways of the world and He sanctifies, he sanctifies you to Himself. Meaning he starts setting you apart so that you, you stop thinking the things of the world are okay. And now you live by his ways and not by your ways. This is a true and faithful saying. And I modified it a little bit for this message, but it goes a little like this. And, and some may say it a little different, but I, I wanted to, you know, kind of custom tailor it to what, what I'm talking about today. And it goes like this. True Christians are certainly not sinless, right? I mean, obviously... We're all going to always sin. To the day I die, I know I'm going to sin. Even though I don't want to sin, I still find sometimes doing things, oh, I just sinned. I wasn't even planning on it. It just kind of happened, you know. So true Christians aren't sinless, meaning that, you know, everybody's going to commit a sin here and there. But the longer a person is a Christian and walks with Jesus Christ, that means you, your faith and your arm in arm and you're looking to him and you're, you know, you're serving him and you're loving him by your life and you're led by his Holy Spirit, then a true Christian should be sinning less and less and less as the time goes on and as their lives go along. So Christians in America, the Bible in America, or pastors, I should say, in churches in America, don't really look on sin like the Bible looks on sin. But when you read the Bible... God's pretty clear that if I've saved you, I expect you to be called unto me and to follow in my ways and to live how I want you to live now. You don't live for yourself anymore. You live for me. Stopping on that, on that little tangent for a little bit, Paul does break away from this idea for just one verse. I'm not really sure why, because, but he does, and so must I. So when we read verse 23, Paul just, out of nowhere, doesn't even fit in the section of Scripture, but he says it anyway, and he had a reason, and we'll know when we get to heaven we can ask him. But he says, he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and, and your frequent infirmities. And so that doesn't really line up with the rest of the you know, section of scripture, but I'm sure glad he said it because it sure does refute some false doctrines out there, but he just switches gears and I'm not going to get into all the false doctrines it refutes. He just says, Hey, Timothy, drink a little wine, you know, when you get one of your stomach problems and you know, I, I know you get sick often. He says there you get, you often have an infirmity, which means an infirmity is a sickness or an illness. You often get sick. So for your illnesses and for your stomach problems, I want you to just drink a little wine here and there. Now, this doesn't violate what Paul told Timothy earlier, where he said that pastors or elders should not drink at all, because obviously if we're using wine for a medicinal purpose, which wine has very many medicinal purposes, then it's okay to use as long as it's not being used for... Timothy wasn't just going to... Paul didn't command Timothy to use it so that he could have a casual drink to relax. Paul said for Timothy to use it because wine, again, has very good medicinal purposes. So he just says, drink a little wine for your stomach illnesses. Uh, But he closes the section, getting off that, he closes the section on the treatment of pastors and overseers, making a couple broad statements about the sinfulness 
and godliness of those in his church. And he says, verses 24 and 25, he says, Some men's, some men's sins are clearly evident, which means you can really see them, preceding them to judgment uh, in this life, that they'll be living in judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What did he just say? What did Paul just say? In a nutshell, just a few, maybe, you know, a couple paragraphs here just to help you get it in a nutshell. Paul just repeated exactly what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 15, 6. Proverbs, Solomon writes, In the house of the righteous, there's much treasure. And I'll explain this in a little bit. In the house of the righteous, there's much treasure. But in the revenue of the wicked is trouble. Or, in the house or life of a godly person or a righteous person, there will be many good deeds or good fruit produced. And that fruit, hey, for a righteous man, the one that's living righteously, the godly person, that fruit, you can't hardly hide it. It's just going to be seen. It's just going to, you know, it's just going to come forth. People are going to see it. Everybody's going to know it. It's going to be clearly seen. While in the house of those who practice sin, those who make a, a, a practice lifestyle of sin, or the wicked, as Solomon says. You see, the Bible only says, if you practice sin, the Bible calls you wicked. If you practice godliness, the Bible calls you a saint. There's really only two paths. There's no in-between. There's no gray areas. While in the house of those who practice sin, or the wicked, as Solomon says, their lives will be full of, or proceeding, or, or producing all kinds of problems. Their lives will be full of strife with people and, and causing all kinds of, you know, they're always going to be arguing with people. Problems with the law. Problems with relationships falling apart. Problems with all kinds of things. And in most cases, the fruit of this kind of life with someone who lives actively in sin, it's going to be easily seen. But, Paul says, and Solomon says, but whether or not it's easy to see, the day of judgment will find it out. For the Bible says, and I say this, because the Bible says it, God sees, hears, and knows all that people do. And in the end, in the end, he will judge mankind on the evil or sin that they commit in that day of judgment. Some people live in that judgment. We had a fellow who used to come to church here for a while. And he started living in God's judgment, started living in sin, started living and practicing sin again. And what happened? His life fell into trouble with the law, and his life fell into all kinds of judgment. I've had several people I've known that that's happened to. And you have some that have come, that you know, their lives are full of godliness, and what happens is godly things are produced. Love, kindness, generosity, peace, you know, goodness. These things are all evident. Good relationships, healthy relationships, and some, even if they're not seen, they're going to be seen later. Good works are always seen and always shown now. That's really what Paul ends with, talking about pastors and the treatment of pastors. So Paul says to Timothy, recapping everything, pastors and overseers should be treated with great respect and financially supported if they are working hard for God's church and serving God's church like God says that they should. They should also... You should not also be, a, uh, for a pastor or elder that's serving God's church like he's supposed to, not only one person is supposed to be able to bring a, a charge against them, but they have to have two or three or more. And I say the opposite is, true of, opposite is true, of course. So for others who are not working hard for God's church and not serving God in his church the way he wants them to, they need to be removed. 
from their positions. They need to be gotten out of their positions. And lastly, pastors and overseers should be held to a higher accountability because God has given them much responsibility. So much responsibility and much what should be required of them. So that means that if they're accused of sinful behavior by more than one person, and the investigation by the leadership of the church finds them this to be true, then they should be called out on their sin in front of the whole church so that the whole church should fear. God doesn't play around when it comes to his kids practicing sin. Especially when he's given you or me or any if you're a leader in church or a pastor, especially when he's given you much responsibility. For to whom much is given, and he would say much responsibility because that's implied, much is required. But outside of how pastors and overseers should be treated, I do want to talk really quickly as I close on the sin issue that the scripture spoke of today. As I said earlier, both Paul and Christ said that those who practice any sin shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I'm just going to read you just the one, and it's the highest authority there is. It's Jesus, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my, uh, will of my Father in heaven. We read that from 1 John 2. But those who do the will of God will abide forever. Jesus says here, But only he who does the will of the Father will go to heaven. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, listen to this, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Any who practice sin shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's on the day we die, because we'll all see God's face when we die. Whether we're a heathen and a saint worshiper or, or a backslidden Baptist or, a, or a, a, whatever, a Mormon or a real Christian, every one of us is going to see the face of Christ when we die. And he's either going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, for you've been faithful with a little, I'm going to give you much. Or we're going to hear, I never knew you, be gone from me, you who worked and practiced sin in your life. So... If you don't do God's will and you live in the practice of any sin, the Bible says when you die, you will not go to heaven. Now, the Bible says it. I'm going to add, I don't care if you think you've been saved. I don't care if you've really been saved and been born again, but you've fallen away. Or I don't, if you think you've been saved, but you haven't really been saved. Or you've never been saved. If you don't practice God's will and practice a sinful lifestyle, you won't be saved in the day of judgment. And the day of judgment will find you out. And God says, if you practice sin in your life, you're not going to go to heaven. What's God's will? You could see Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. I'm not going to read them, but in a nutshell, what it says is, what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37 39, he says, decide to live a life of love towards God. And toward Christ with your actions and words, not just your words, and decide to love them more than everything and anyone else in the world and live like it. 
live a life of love to God every day by your actions. And find out what God says don't do and don't do that. And surrender your life. Submit your life to Christ daily. Submit. Jesus, I need you. Save me. I need you. Change me. I want to be more like you, less like me. Here I am. Save me and surrender daily, is what Matthew chapter 10 says, what Jesus is saying. And stop living for yourself, Jesus says, and serving the sinful desires of your flesh. And live a submitted life unto Christ. Following Him, listening to Him, and walking with Him arm in arm, like we talked about earlier, and learning from Him and, and, and letting Him be your Lord. And that's what it means to do God's will. If this is not you today, then you won't be in heaven when you die unless, 2 Peter 3, for God desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. God doesn't want to see you keep living like that. God wants to see you have a relationship with Him. God wants you to submit your life to Him. He gave His life on the cross for you. He wants you to give your life to Him because you've got free will. You can live your life for whoever you want. Will you live it for God? Will you submit to God? Will you surrender to Him? Or will you keep living for yourself? You can't serve yourself and you can't serve Christ. You can only serve Christ or yourself only. So who do you serve today? Who do you love today? If you don't live a life of love for Christ, if you don't live a life surrendered unto Jesus, please turn now. Surrender now. Fall on your knees. Pray. Repent before God. And, 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 and turn to Him and tell Him you're sorry. And change. Turn to Him and say, change me. Save me. I don't want to live a life of sin anymore. I want to live a life for you now. Please. And that's what I pray and I hope that your heart cry will be if you realize you're not surrendered unto Him right now. Let's pray. Please, let's close our service. Thank you so much, Lord for this message. Thank you so much for um, your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you so much that you're so kind. And Lord, that although so many today, especially in America, Lord God, so many today are so deceived. They live a life serving and pleasing themselves, Lord. And, and they, they go to churches where the pastors are in sin and everybody thinks it's okay. He goes, oh, God just loves me and everything's all right. And Lord, God in heaven, please forgive them. Show them, Lord God. Show them, Lord God. Open their eyes when they read your word. Even if they just read it once in a while, Lord, show them when they open it, Lord, that they're wrong. And Lord, show them that they will not be accepted, Lord, if they live in practice of any sin. Please, God, help them to repent, Lord. Show them they need repentance, Lord God. Drive them to the cross. Bring them to repentance and change their hearts and and bring them to Christ and save them. Thank you for this message, Lord. I I thank you for all the direction that you give us in your word. And I thank you, Lord God, for all your love that you continue to pour out upon all mankind, Lord God, that you continue to cry out, Lord God, even though so many in this world and they know about you, but they don't want to know you. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.